this morning at our Bibles. I'm going to pray for us and ask God's help, and uh, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, this word is so accessible for us. I pray, Father, that we might understand it well. I pray this morning that we might be challenged to not only understand it, but to read, engage, and meet you, the author. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we, uh, we did a series on King David. <coughs> Apologies. <coughs> we did a series on King David a little while ago. Today, I want to tuck that into bed and uh, basically reflect on how King David is, uh, is so central uh, in the Scriptures. But in order to do that, I want to tell, tell you some more about the Bible itself. So how valuable is this book? I think you can probably find a price on the back of the one that you've got there, so someone can call it out. How valuable is the Bible? $22.99. We probably got it on special, so it's even cheaper than that, I'm guessing. Go on the 50% discount. So it's worth about, you know, $11, $12. That's not very valuable, is it? Some of you got it for free on your phones, is that right? So it's free, that's not very expensive, not very valuable then, is it? The question we want to look at today is how valuable is this word and how do we read it for all the value that it has? Different approaches to the value of this book in front of us will give different results. Let let me give you a couple of different approaches to the Bible. I've invented a word or corrupted English or something. I've called the first one ignorable. Perhaps the Bible for you is ignorable. Take the bin, throw the beautiful compass, the objective direction of life in the bin, then ignore it. You don't need it. Your Twitter feed is full of wisdom. Your social media speaks life and hope to you. Look at you sitting there thinking the answer is yes to that. No, it's not. What happens though is we can throw the eternal word of God away and we can make our intuition, what we think of things, to be the highest word. The outcome in the end is that we never read this. It'd be amazing. I've now got the ability to know how much time I spend looking at worthless words. My, my latest update to my operating system will literally tell me how many minutes I spend on social media on my phone. It's a mortifying figure. But here's the Word of God. If I ignore it, I'll never read it. There are other approaches, though. I assume today you're in church, so you've made a good start. It's very likely that you're not going to ignore the Word of God because that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Church. Yeah, that would be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy if you had the living Word of God in your possession and you didn't read it. That would be a tragedy. So what do we do instead? I think sometimes we uh, chop down the Bible to the parts that we like. Who likes watermelon here? Okay. How many of the people who like watermelon love the rind? Crazy people. You don't like the rind, do you? We throw that away. I think that we see the rind is a delivery system for the sweet goodness that is the pink 
flesh of the watermelon, yeah? Well, I want to suggest to you, this is actually somehow how we read the Bible sometimes. Many of us can get to the point where we'd say, the Old Testament is the rind that delivers the sweet beauty of the New Testament, yeah? Just throw that stuff away. It holds up the, uh, the front part of my Bible. It makes it look like a significant book. I don't read it, but I'm glad it's there. We ignore the Old Testament and we love the New. Some of us are like that, aren't we? If it comes to what will I read today, well, the Bible starts about two-thirds of the way through and you'll find something in the New. The Old Testament's a bit dusty, a bit hard. Some of it I don't really like, so maybe I'll just get rid of it. In the end, what we do is we create a vision of the Bible which says the New Testament is the real Bible. Because that's what practically you're doing. You're just ignoring disposing of the old I think you'd agree that's not very good but it can get worse than that does anyone know what this magnificent machine is anyone Saturn V rocket did anyone else have Saturn V rocket I see that hand there in the cry and you pay okay good so Saturn V rocket a million moving parts it's the way that we put man on the moon massive machine, right? But here's the interesting bit. The only thing that you're really interested in the Saturn V rocket is actually this bit here. That is the only part that has humans in it. All the rest of it, you can chuck in the bin. It just gets you up into, into orbit and it gets utterly discarded. All the rest of it we can just throw away. Now for some of us, we read the Bible like this, so much disposable stuff in the sense of what we do is we work out the words of Jesus are really important and we can just chuck away the rest of the Bible. The way that we can inadvertently arrive at this is that we can say the words of Jesus are the pinnacle. I'm I'm following Jesus, so all I want to do is make sure I know the words of Jesus. And some of our Bibles can direct us in that way, can't they? They can take us to put a special emphasis on the word of Jesus. Does anyone know what kind of Bible would help me do that? A red letter edition. Do you guys know what that is? So in some Bibles, you'll find uh, that the words of Jesus are actually in a different color in the Bible. Has anyone seen this? So a red letter Bible. Now at one level, it's hardly the end of the world. But what it inadvertently does to us is it says, hey, I don't see so much red in the book of Leviticus, right? I don't see very much red in Deuteronomy or in Second Chronicles. So are these less important parts? What we can inadvertently do with the red letter version of the Bible is we can say the pinnacle is the words of Jesus and the rest of it, it's just stuff that would get us into orbit where we find the pinnacle stuff, the bit about Jesus. And so we can dispose of it. I want to suggest to you a different vision of what this book looks like. It's a picture of a fishbowl. How do we envisage the Bible as a fishbowl? Well, I'd say to you, the Old Testament is the structure. It's the thing that holds, contains, shapes, directs. The Old Testament establishes the shape of what we come to understand in the new, which we'll call the water that fills the fishbowl. It only makes sense in the shape of the old. And it's all about one thing. Why do you have a fishbowl in the first place? 
to show off the fish at the center of it, yeah? That's why it's there. It's clearly enhancing our enjoyment of the fish. And so I want to say to you that the Old and the New Testament work together perfectly to highlight someone, Jesus, the main event. See, because you could have a, uh, an Old Testament that didn't have any water in it, but it'd be a pretty bad way to understand Jesus. He'd just be in there for a little while and then he'd die. This has happened to me. It's not very good. Or you can try and have water without a bowl. Your fish won't do very well there either. Or you can have a bowl with water in it, and that's not very interesting. What we have instead in the Scriptures is a clear, established shape filled with the words of the New Testament that point us clearly in both cases to the person of Jesus. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed by God. It's a whole. It's supposed to be taken together. And the highlight, the focus, is Jesus. So what do we notice if we take this approach? There's four things I think that we can notice. The first is that there's a unity in the Scripture. The Old and the New Testament are designed to be read together. And so we would see the Old Testament, the Old is the New concealed, and the New Testament, the New is the Old revealed. Let me explain. So up there is two colors woven together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're going to understand your Bible, you can't just read one without the other. You'll miss out on the beautiful tapestry that Jesus has woven. So you've got to have both together. So when it says here, the old is the new concealed. In other words, in the Old Testament, you'll find the things that help you make sense of Jesus. See, if Jesus is called, behold, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you go, it just looks like a carpenter. How is he a lamb? Without the Old Testament, you don't know the Passover, where the lamb died in place of those that were deserving of death. You'll never understand it. So the old is the New Testament concealed. It's in there. And then the new is the old revealed. We start to understand that Jesus is a prophet and a priest and a king. We were looking for that from the Old Testament. And now we see it in Jesus. The old is the new concealed, and the new is the old revealed. There's a unity in the Bible. Indeed, Jesus showed us that in Luke 24. After his resurrection, he goes walking with some of his friends and says in Luke 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is saying, I'm in there. I'm Mr. Old Testament. I'm the guy you were looking for. We also see that there is a profound uniqueness to the Word of God. It is not like other things. God speaks as one light in the darkness because He is one author. So we see that God speaks in creation. We look out there and we think our world is telling us that there is a God. But we'll never know Jesus until we see His special revelation in Scripture. Without this book, we won't know the way to be saved. It's unique. Nothing else is the Word of God in this way. The Bible is unique. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Where else am I going to go to find that information? Nowhere. Can't find it anywhere else. The next thing that we find is that there's a universality to the Word of God. What I mean by that is the Bible is written to Hebrews in ancient Israel. And you kind of go, well, okay, we could just leave it there in dusty Palestine 3,000 years ago. But instead, we find the Bible speaks to all of humanity. It's got a message for today. 5,000 years later, it's still got things to say to you and I. This is the Word of God. It's universal in its scope. God is sovereign. He's in charge of all things. We see it beautifully in uh, 2 Peter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of humans. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, God who's in charge of everything speaks to all people. And so scripture will contain traces of prophecy. You know that disclaimer that comes with the nuts. Seems whatever, pro- whatever product it is these days, it comes with traces of nuts, may contain traces. The scriptures contain traces of prophecy. Why is that? It'll speak of what is to come. Why does scripture contain traces of prophecy? God knows the end. So the God who wrote the Bible for us knows the end. He's eternal. So he's at the end and he's at the beginning. He's eternal. He stands outside of time. So God knows the end. Secondly, he has the power to create his end. So he's not just aware of it. He's making it happen. So God knows the end. He has the power to create the end. He uses people for his ends. So God just doesn't say, I'm going to wind the world up and everything I want will happen. He says, actually, I want you. I want you. I want you to come and join me in what I'm doing. So God uses people to achieve his ends. Here's where prophecy comes in. God reveals his ends to people. So he says, I'm calling you to join me because I'm saying the future looks like this. Come help me make it happen. Can you see that? So scripture, because God knows the end, because he's powerful, because he uses people, contains prophecy. Because he's inviting you and I through this book to join him in his process in the world. Fourthly, we see there's an unshakable center to God's plan. It's all about a particular man. It's our fishbowl illustration again. Redeeming a people. God wants to buy a group of people, win them to himself bring glory to Jesus. That's at the heart of both Testaments. We we can see that in a place like Ephesians 1, where it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will through the Bible, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment. This is the key, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Jesus is unshakably the center of this book. So how do the Old and the New Testaments connect Jesus? What I want to do is I want to revisit the great promise that was made to David. Remember I said we're looking at David. Do you remember 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7 happens in the time of the kings of Israel. This is my Bible timeline up the top here. That's creation, the fall, Noah, etc. This is the New Testament over here. It occurs in the time of David. And God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 something extraordinary. 
He said to him, when your days are over and when you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. Well, so far so good. David's going to have a son. Your own flesh and blood and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and this is the key. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's offspring will be a forever king in a forever kingdom. David will have a great descendant and someone will come from him who will be a forever king in a forever kingdom. Now David gets pretty excited about this because God's sovereign, because he's in charge and he's made a promise, David can go, one day that will happen. I can trust that God will make it happen. And so he writes in the Psalms, same time, about 1000 BC, David writes in the Psalms, like the words we see here in Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David's going, I've got an inkling of what you're doing, God. One of my descendants will reign forever. But it's not David. It can't be David, because David is about to die and he's about to decay. So he must be talking about somebody else who's to come. We see it again in Psalm 110, in these really confusing words, which I'll explain to you. Look, he says in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, have a think about this. David's the king, right? He's the big kahuna. That's a technical term. He's in charge. He has a Lord. Who is David's Lord? God, right? That's good. We're doing well so far. So David's in charge. He looks to God. That's the Lord. That's the capital L Lord. But he has a vision where he sees the Lord says to my Lord, if you're the king of Israel, and you've got God as your Lord. Who is the Lord speaking to? Can you see how this is confusing? Are you with me? There's no spaces left. He's the King of Israel and God is his Lord. So how does the Lord say to my Lord? Do, do you see? So it's confusing. So we, we see here it's not David. It can't be David. And it is David's Lord. Somebody else who is not the Father. And they will be a king and a priest. And that's what people are looking forward to. So the Old Testament sets us up going, where is this king? Where is this Messiah? And so everyone was looking. Now, fortunately, we don't just have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus. So now we're in the New Testament. We see Jesus. And Jesus having a chat in the temple. Okay. And he says this, a thousand years after David, a thousand years, he says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, why do they say it? Because 2 Samuel 7 said, one of your descendants will rule on your throne forever. Yeah, that's why they say that. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is Jesus speaking. He says, David 
himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Are you with me? How can the son of David be greater than David? It doesn't work. And so Jesus just chucks the question out there and the teachers of the law go, I don't know. And the crowd, who are all a bunch of cynics like us, love seeing the teachers of the law in a pickle. Jesus just said, one of your descendants. And then he said, but David said, my Lord, hey, what do you, what do you make of that? And so Jesus asked the question, he stumps the Pharisees and he doesn't answer. He doesn't tell them who that is. But you and I know who it is, don't you? Who is it? It's Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. So then when Peter stands up at Pentecost, this was the reading that was brought to us from Acts chapter 2. When Peter stands up at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, he talks about Jesus. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Do you remember I said that God was always in charge? The cross is not an accident. Can you see that there? Handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw my Lord always before me because, it is my, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shot. So what's this saying? The one who we're waiting for is Jesus. Jesus is the forever king and he's made a forever king by the resurrection because if you come alive from the dead, do you die again? The answer is no. Jesus was raised to never die again, so he can be the forever king. He goes on in Acts chapter 2. He says, Jesus is exalted, which is the right hand. Is that the right hand? It's my left hand. Is that the right hand? For you guys looking. Okay. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see in here. For David did not ascend to heaven. Yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David solves the mystery. He says, who is the Lord? Well, the answer is, it's Jesus, yeah? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is David's Lord. And we know that he is because he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. It was promised a thousand years before and God did it. Amazing. Well, there's more. God keeps his promises and he makes promises even to us. He kept his promises in the Old Testament. He's made some promises to us. And Kathy brought us this reading from Revelation 22. When was the last time you read Revelation 22? Who knew there was a back page to your Bible that had scripture on it, hey? So here it is. We're in Revelation 22. Have a look at it just to convince yourself it's really there. Revelation 22. You go, what page is that? I go, go to the end of your Bible and find the last one that's still the Bible. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Did you know Jesus said that? I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What sort of statement about Jesus is that? It's awesome. Jesus is truly great so we see here jesus is great but he's more than great we get more description of him here 
Have a look at verses, uh, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Look how he describes himself. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And if you don't have an Old Testament, you sit there and you go, brilliant. Who's David? Why does it matter? And Jesus is saying, you can take your stand on the truth of this. Because I'm the offspring. I'm the root of David. God kept his promise to David and he will keep his promise to you. Because that's who I am. Can you see that? It's beautiful. Jesus is great. Jesus is Lord and Jesus will return. And you go, yeah, but how can I know? And I say, because he's the root and the offspring of David. So what does this mean? Great. The Bible's a fishbowl. What do I do with that? Well, number one, I want you to treasure scripture. It's worth much more than $22. In fact, the fact that you can get it for free on your phone, free, totally free, means that often we just neglect it. Treasure it. Treasure it. Secondly, seek Jesus in the scriptures. It's about Jesus. So even as you're laboring through the Old Testament, it's about Jesus. Find Jesus in there. Look for the lines that lead to Jesus. Prepare for his return. It's coming back. Do you know that, church? Jesus is going to come back. It's for real. Really. I don't know if it'll be today. I'd like to see the end of Bathurst a bit later today. But I'd be okay if Jesus turned. He will come back. He's promised to. And we need to trust that the God who could wait a thousand years to fulfill his promise to David will keep his promise to you. You can trust him today. So what do we do with all of that? Well, I want to say, how valuable is this Bible thing? You'll show me how valuable it is by what you do with it. I don't know if you guys know, but uh, I was reading this uh, a little bit earlier. In April this year, the Chinese government pulled from China's online bookstores the Bible. You can't buy it anymore online in China. Why? I said this morning they didn't ban Tintin. Why this book? It's all made up, isn't it? The Chinese government sees something subversive here. Something that says there's a greater king than any earthly king. Something that is the voice of the living God. And if you're an authoritarian regime, this is subversive. It tells you that you can have an allegiance to someone other than the greatest, most powerful ruler on this earth. This book is so dangerous, it's banned. And it's so valued by us, we let it get dusty on our shelves. Brothers and sisters, we need to start reading. We need to meet with the living God in his living word. It's priceless. And you have it. We have a plan for reading the Bible. I've got some plans out on the, um, out on the table out there. They just give you a chapter to read each day. Some of it's even the Old Testament. You'll find it's great. You might find it's hard, but it's the Word of God and it's not the rind to be chucked away. It's not the back end of a satin. It's the Word of God. Treasure it. Enjoy it. Savor it. Read it. You can download the, uh, the reading plan. Uh, we'll get it in the next newsletter. Grab one from the back or just start reading in Jeremiah chapter 1 tomorrow.
One chapter a day. Get into it. It's good. I'm going to pray for us that we might treasure this incredible treasure, the Word of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much uh, for your Word. Thanks that in it we meet you. There's no other way we can meet you, the living God, other than in your Word, to know who Jesus is and what your plans and purposes are. We thank you that Jesus said he's coming back. I pray that you'd find a church prepared right here because we love you, Lord, and we meet you regularly in your word. Help us to take our stand there, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.